Folks, you know what I'm going to say. You know the drill. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. And if you head over to Fangoria.com right now to learn more, you can, well, subscribe while you're there. And you can also enter the code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. And now, it's time to get on with that show, shall we? Let's do it. Mm, girl. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today we are diving back into the world of religious fanatics, mysterious tentacles, and spiders with human teeth as we once again revisit The Mist. Our guest is a director behind the disturbing horror flicks The Hive and Brightburn as well as the ridiculously fun Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 music video Inferno, starring, of course, David Hasselhoff. His next film is a family horror flick called Nightbook, starring Kristen Ritter and produced by the great Sam Raimi, which just bowed on Netflix today. How's that for timing? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Yaroveski to the KingCast stage. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey. <laughs> I, I don't know why I was expecting like a sound effect. Here, I'm just going to... Sadly, <laughs> clap for myself. <laughs> so, uh, I'm excited to be here. We just talked very briefly before the show, uh, and I was telling you that you and I have never spoken. I don't know so, how that's possible, though, because yeah, yeah, I, 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 I know it's true, but it's also <laughs> so weird that that it's gone on this long. It is weird, uh, given how like incestuous the the like online blogging world is to with filmmakers. You know, and like yeah. the people you end up talking to. I think we kind of figured it out in that you are no longer on Twitter, and that's where I do most of my communication. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, there's a the, piece. It, a piece of it's that, and and I think a piece of it is that I, I've always kind of felt like an outsider to like the I don't know the 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 center of where all those conversations happen. I, I always feel like I'm like off in the. <laughs> stratosphere somewhere people are like who i don't know he made some movie called brightburn or something i don't know what the fuck that well, is. you're and, and <laughs> you're you're uh you're maintaining an air of uh mystique baby you know that's oh, what yeah, you no, want uh, there. Uh, right 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 yeah this is where i pretend that that was all part of the plan <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> we'll play along with that but um what i wanted to add on to that though is i fucking love brightburn that movie oh, rules thanks, so oh, hard wow Thank um, you so much. I had such a good time seeing that and uh, ended up watching it again when it when, you know, when it went out to, uh, you know, digital. Um, yeah. I really like what y'all were going for there. And I think you really pulled it off. Uh, <laughs> I seem I seem to distantly remember that there was maybe some talk about a, a sequel at some point. Is there any chance of that still being in the cards? 
I think that there's always a chance of it. I mean, you know, there's really two kind of complications with it as a, as an idea. The complication number one is that James is incredibly busy. I mean, he's you know yeah. <laughs> he's making these massive big movies, and and um, and so that's that's a, a piece of it. And then the the other piece of it is is that there's actually three. I'll tell you the third piece last. The second piece of it is is you know. I don't own Brightburn, you know, so Sony owns Brightburn. So it's up to Sony uh, whether or not, a you know, an, another Brightburn movie happens, I believe, and 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 whether or not they want me to come back to, to make it. You know, creatively, I have a, a, a pile of ideas. And also, I would love to work with James again. I mean, and, and Brian and Mark, the, the writers, uh, you know, and, and Simon, the producer and just the whole team i mean everyone i you know sure. we all got really close and i'd love to work with them again and and the third thing is that baked into you know one of the fun things about making brightburn was it was such a secret we were so secretive about it people didn't know what the concept was what it was there was so much fun to that and so it made i i think for the viewer or the the average moviegoer it made it really exciting because so much of what's coming out, you now see a mile away. It's pre-discussed. Mm -hmm. oh, everyone yeah. has these pre-formed opinions. And then you come out of the movie and people go, okay, well, in this movie, they did this, but they didn't do this. And they did this. And they did, you know, there's sort of like, they, there's like a report card after the movie of like what expectations were met and which ones weren't. And so to be able to just drop a a bomb, like, hey, we made this movie. You don't even know what happened. You, you didn't even know it was happening. And now here it is was really fun. And I think it's sort of part of the DNA of Brightburn. And so I think if we were ever to be so lucky as to, to make another thing in the Brightburn universe, um, I would keep it a secret. I would, I would lie about it on this podcast. I would, <laughs> <laughs> I would pretend and I would make up stories and I would do everything I could to keep it a secret. So those are the yeah. th really the three <laughs> you just won't things. tell anybody it happens until like the week before it drops uh, that's yeah i mean we yeah you know uh eric you know this because you were you were at my wedding but i had a, a wedding a week after we shot brightburn um and there was i don't know 120 people there you know i had a big yeah i have a big family so and, and some friends and you know and so so 120 people were there and i think maybe a handful of them knew what the movie was that we made. That's how secretive mm -hmm. we were con with the concept of, you know, subverting superhero and stuff. So people that are closest to me in my life didn't know the, the you know, what the concept was of the movie we were making. That's how secret. But your video game friends did. I can say you, that you much. did. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you, you, you came to set. <laughs> I did. You were yeah. On set. You saw me shoot it. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. Like, I, I gotta say, like, I really enjoyed kind of hanging there and like, watching you know the creative dynamic between you and james gunn because like james is obviously like a mentor you know for yeah. you and obviously. and like <laughs> it, but well but to I, it's just something i remember noting it at the time thinking it was just really badass because that's kind of what the old hollywood system used to be you know you would have mm. billy wilder and you'd have you know all these guys and they would have you know a protege or they would have somebody they saw something in and they would do stuff like what happened there where like James was a producer, but he was also sitting there and like next to you willing to uh, answer a question or guide you through something. It wasn't your first feature, but it was your first feature at that level. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't know. Like I just I was sat there just really impressed that 
that he was, you know, there kind of letting you explore, you know, your cr- creative directorial feet and, and like was there with advice whenever you needed it. And I'm like, how cool would it be if that became more of the norm? I think we would see like better, better movies. movies and better and, movies and there would be less. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but that, yeah, I don't know. That was a great experience. I had a lot of fun visiting you no, when we were I, shooting that. I appreciate that. I, I tell James all the time, like from my experience with Brightburn, I now have like a, a, a James Gunn Jedi ghost that just, <laughs> <laughs> that just appears to me when I, when I'm on set, when I'm prep, when I meet, you know, when I'm thinking about movies, because, you know, I, I went into that movie really wanting to absorb as much of his brain as I could and learn from him as much as I could, you know, and I, I did. And then, and, the, and, and now, you know, when I was shooting Nightbooks, for example, the things I learned, the, the lessons, the, the growth I made on that movie, like paid off massively for me in Nightbooks. You know, it's just like many times James would appear before me in his Jedi ghost form and be like, (laughs) Dave, (laughs) you know, it's, it's focus on the story, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and also like it just in terms of how you work as a director, because the, the memory that I have the most of like watching James, like help you on Brightburn was, there was a a scene where um, the main character, uh, Brandon was freaking out. And like, and I remember it well before like the scene was actually set up, he was like, all right, so, so just from a a directing a a kid actor point of view, he's like, you need to go psych him up. And then like watching you interpret that. And then like just watching you on the monitor with the actor, you know, just kind of jumping up and down and getting him excited. So like when you watch the movie, he's actually worked up in the scene, you know, like little Mm. things like that. I have to imagine that, especially working with kids, you know, that in having to coax a performance out of a kid actor, you know, that that's something that probably, you know, stuck with you. Yeah, it it certainly did. And, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I I remember that day. I remember me and him, like me and, and, and Jackson, like playfully, obviously, but like yelling back and forth at each other. He was like, I hate you. And I was like, I hate you. He was like, I hate you. And we were just yelling, I hate you at each other. Um, and just getting him worked up to, to be in that place. Because when the scene starts, he's already been yelling, I hate you at his parents for a long time, you know? And, and no, it was fun, man. And I mean, I I learned so much from that experience and and from James and I'm, I'm grateful for it, you know? Man. On Nightbooks, you're you're also working alongside another you know big name producer, which is I am. You know, Sam Raimi. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if you had a similar relationship with him that you had with Guns and uh, Guns with Gun well, <laughs> in terms of like a uh, you know was you with know I, I imagine you had to have been learning stuff from him too, yeah. Well, in in some ways, it was a very similar relationship in that he was a creative ally captain of the ship in a way or 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 he's the i don't know he, he was our leader but he was also incredibly creatively supportive of my vision um of of helping me try to achieve that instead of imposing his will on me you know um but so much of the dynamic was so fundamentally different like for example you know james uh, James, I've known forever. James officiated my wedding. James is a close friend of mine. When I met James, he was 
directing web shorts, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. and our relationship was just so different than, than mine and Sam, who I grew up worshiping Sam Raimi. Like Sam Raimi wasn't a person. It was a name. It was like an icon. The first time I saw him in person, I snuck into the Spider-Man two premiere and I saw him with my own eyes and was like, holy shit, that's Sam Raimi. (laughs) My, my eyes are receiving light from Sam Raimi, but the light bounced off of (laughs) Sam and entered my eyes. And that was like as far as the interaction went. And then 20 years later, I'm on a Zoom call with him going, hey, <laughs> uh, hire me. And <laughs> <laughs> but from that, he and I would work together a lot over over Zoom, sadly, because of COVID, but over right. Zoom. And I, I never met him in person. I was never again in person with him until the last day of sound mixing. Um, Holy shit. That's wild. Isn't that fucking crazy? Um, <laughs> it is. Part of it was because COVID, right? Pre-vaccine, it was like a scary time. And there was no, you know, there's no way to just get into a room together. Um, and he, it, you know, it wasn't easy to just go to Canada where we shot the movie. It was a process. There was no way he was coming to that because he also had to go make his movie um, that he's shooting, uh, that he shot. And he was shooting or at least he was in prep while we were shooting. So even after the vaccines and stuff, he's making his movie and, you know, nowhere near me. So we, we weren't even in the same city for most of the time making this right. movie, but then finally it, things did align and, and, and we got in a room together and it was, it was awesome, man. I, I, I have so many memories burned in my brain of looking to my left and seeing Sam Raimi sitting next to me and him talking to me like a, like a peer and which is crazy. Cause I'm not his peer. He's certainly <laughs> <laughs> above me, but but the amount of kindness that shows to just be like, oh, you know, have a kind of back and forth with me like that um, um, is amazing. And, and I don't know, it's just like a dream come true. That, that, that stuff will be burned in my brain forever. He, he was also like he, he loves the movie and he was supportive of the movie and he was so complimentary to me. It was it was like, wow, this is surreal. Right. I saw the movie the other night and um, it's good, first of all, and I recommend it. Uh, I, you know, something Eric told me beforehand was like, this is the movie that if you were a kid, you would watch and then ultimately become a horror fan. It's like the (laughs) ultimate, like sort of gateway to that. And I I agree with that take. Like if I saw night books when I was, I don't know, nine, 10 years old, I would go ape shit for this thing. (laughs) You know, it would kickstart a whole, um, love of obsession. Yeah, Yeah. that's cool. That's very cool. You know, I consider myself a pretty hardened horror fan. But it, mm. but there are other people out there who would say the same about themselves, who I think are probably a little standoffish with like what might be considered like YA horror. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not gnarly enough. It's just not, you know, it's not R rated and blah, 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 blah. But there is so much value in movies like that, you know, where yeah. where kids are being introduced to this genre. It's not a thing to be ashamed of. It's not like a, you know, uh, any any of the the connotations that horror might've once had in like a more hysterical era. And it's hard to imagine a more hysterical era than this one. (laughs) But um, I remember it seems like parents, like when I was growing up were more would shield their kids from horror more than they do today. Anyway, Mm. I'm just saying like there there's, there's a massive amount of value to that kind of film. And um, I think people are really going to embrace it. Man, I hope so. That what a cool thing it would be if that's if that's true, and if this movie does speak to people. Never before have I made a movie where I feel so disconnected with what people will think about it. 
Like, I, I really don't know. Because of COVID, I, it's not like I, I've never sat and watched a movie with an audience. I sat next to Eric uh, and mm-hmm. I showed it to him a, a while ago. You know, I said, you know, a handful of friends I sat next to and I showed it to them and I'm like, what do you think? But it's kind of exciting to be completely in the dark. And it's also mm-hmm. scary and weird. Um, but I'll, I'll say this, you know, this is maybe the most obvious sentence I've ever said out loud, but the following sentences after it sort of require it. But like, I love hard horror movies, right? Like I, the, the darker and the crazier and the further you push things, the, the more joy it might, it will probably bring me (laughs) and the more I will laugh with glee (laughs) as it's happening on the screen. Right. I, I really do like, like love that, that stuff. And at the same time, this movie still like speaks to me or, or I still felt the need to create this movie uh, just because I love an aspect of horror. It, it doesn't mean that it's the only aspect of horror I love, right. you know, uh, like there's so, there's so much in horror that is yet to be explored. And, and, and this to me was an opportunity because in a way the spirit of this movie, in my opinion, is sort of a, a hardcore horror movie, you know, mm. it, it, it is certainly influenced by movies like drag me to hell and stuff like that, as opposed to, I don't know, the, the obvious go-to things that people reference when they're making family, family horror. It's just that this movie does not give you any violence in the way that uh, drag me to hell does. It, it twists that conception of it. The storytelling mechanics, mm-hmm. The genre, the way the story is told is all there. You know, the the anticipation build, the big jump scare, the goop. It's all there. It's just not something that a family can't watch together, you know? And right, so totally. in that concept, the movie manages to become its own thing, you know? Because so much of family horror is often a comedy adventure with the veneer or the style of what horror kind of looks like-ish, right. you know? Um, a very polished, refined version uh, of what horror looks like. And I wanted to make a family movie using horror, like the genre, not the look, the genre, the the, the right. storytelling right. devices, the an- anticipation. Oftentimes, the scariest part in a horror movie is just someone walking through a house, um, a dark house saying, hello, who is there? What is that? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you can watch that with your family. But that's not right. in conventional family uh, horror stuff, you know? And so anyways, right. I, I can talk about this for a long time. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, I'm obviously passionate about this. But but it was really fun to sort of discover what the boundaries are, you know, right. along the way. Well, I mean, I think that beyond just the technique, which is there, there is also the fact that your main character is every one of us who grew up to be a horror fan, what we were at 10 years old, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you know, your main character in this is a, is a creative little kid who's kind of looked on as a, as a weirdo because he likes horror and he's decorating his, his room. He's got fangos in, in his room. He's got, you know, lost boys, you know, posters and shit. It's like every one of us, there's an automatic like entryway into this, which is why I think that, you know, this is such a good gateway movie because I think not only are you going to have the old assholes like me out there watching this going, yep, that, I was that kid when I was, you know, when I was that age, yeah. you're going to have all the, the kids who are the, the weirdo horror kids now looking at that going, that's me. And, yeah. uh, you know, I don't, I think that's what's particularly smart about this, but, um, yeah, thanks but, man. Yeah. I, you know, when, when, 
I, I was also that kid, right? Like, I guess all of all of us were that kid. Like, we we grew up on this stuff. We love this stuff. And when the production designer was working on Alex's bedroom, I sent her photos of my bedroom, and I was like, "This is what it should look like." You know, I really wanted like it now, to be real, but not when you were <laughs> a kid, like right now. <laughs> no, so I should say, yeah, my 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 childhood bedroom. Um, Your and- living room is actually scarier than anything in the movie. That, that's probably true. I, I'd say, that's I'd say true. Yarvo's for anybody uh, very curious. There's. There's like a, a sequence towards the end of the movie where we see a lot of like doll heads and shit. That's more what like Yarvo's aesthetic is in, yeah, yeah, in, in his house than, than, yeah. than Lost Boys posters. But uh, but yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and part of that is my wife's aesthetic uh, and part of that's mine. And um, but, I, you know, one of the things that really drew me to the movie, just sort of going back to what, what we were saying about that room and, 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 you know, feeling connected to the movie was was I read the script and I was like, man. I know this story and there's nothing worse than seeing a movie like this and watching it. We all have seen this character before being Mm -hmm. written by and directed by someone who wasn't this. And it feels so inauthentic. It doesn't feel real. It's so stupid. They're always excited about some and have some horror take, you know, on some movie. It's just all wrong. It's just, it's all wrong. And I just wanted it to be authentic. I, I, I believe that there was real heart to, to, to to this message and to and to the journey that that you go through and and as I started to pull on that what I what I came to realize is that this is totally true about us this was our experience but our experience is completely relatable like you know when I watch Whiplash I was never a jazz drummer but my God the specificity of that story and the way it's told pulled me in and I certainly found an aspect of my life in, in, in there or, or, you know, and I can name t- tons of movies. Right. And, right. and what, I, what I came to realize is that it's not just kids who uh, love horror movies. It's kids who love music. It's kids, it's, it's kids who find a passion in life early and are obsessed with drawing are obsessed with dance or, you know, video games, whatever it is, you found something that you love. And that thing is now making you different than the other kids. And other kids are so insecure that they're just looking for something to poke at. Typically, at least this was certainly true in my case. I imagine it was true in your cases. But being creative, being someone drawn into that stuff, we're extra sensitive. We're Mm -hmm. extra affected by those things. And it's a powder keg of disaster for, for people because there's so much in this world that's pushing you towards, hey, those are your dreams. Okay, you can have those at night, but now you got to get up and you got to go to work and you got to look a certain way. You got to talk a certain way. You got to, you know, like these are the things you got to do. There's all this pressure. And I don't know. I I, I, I wanted to make a movie that was sort of a message to kids today to be like, fuck that. (laughs) You, You be weird. Be weird embrace it you know and 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 explore it and and it can save your life yeah and it can save your life (laughs) who knows what you'll become the three of us were those weirdos who were getting dunked on by cool kids and now look at us we're on a podcast together (laughs) (laughs) speaking of which this is this is actually a good transition into what your stephen king origin story is like were you reading king at a very early age or did you start with the movies like when did he first come onto your radar it's a great question. And honestly, there are things in my head 
because I, my dad very early on got a video camera, got like a VHS camera, which at the time was the only way you could record video. You know, now you, everyone has a thousand different ways to record video, but mm-hmm. at the time no one could. And then you get a video camera and it, it was magic. It was a magic box mm-hmm. that made little movies and they were huge and heavy and, and clunky. But before I could actually hold it in my arms, cause it was so heavy, I wanted to make movies. Um, and my dad would help me like move the camera around and stick it on the tripod. And, and so before a lot of my memories, uh, I loved horror movies. You know, I saw, I saw Nightmare on Elm Street when I was four or five. Um, Holy shit. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little too young. That explains but so much. It explains so much, uh, the good and the bad. Um, so Stephen King to me uh, almost feels like, uh, like he was always there. What's what's the term for like uh, knowledge that is in your DNA when you're born um, that isn't learned like uh, ancestral knowledge? It just it just felt like right. it's always been in the ether. Like I, I, I don't I wish I had this cool story it was like I walked in and I saw this poster. Or I read this book right. and I, I don't have it. It was like Stephen King was always there. Like he was this legendary force that was existed. Yeah, yeah that's not an, an uncommon uh, reaction. I mean, that's the way oh, really? I, he. He pretty much, I mean, that's kind of the way he was for me. I mean, obviously, I remember the first book I read that, like, hooked me. And I remember, you know, watching Stand By Me for the first time as a kid. But it's mostly not watching the movie. I remember watching that more. uh, I remember what was surrounding watching that for the first time. Because my mom uh, was very open with what I could watch. And for whatever reason, with Stand By Me, she was a little nervous about it. And this is, you know, I'm a kid of the 80s, so I was watching Jason movies and, and right. Freddy movies and, and stuff like that. And and the w- there was only a few that she was weird about. Like, I remember we had a, a tape because this is back in the day where, I mean, only the rich kids in the neighborhood would actually buy a new movie on VHS. This is like pre-Sun Coast, right? This was uh, where uh, VHS movies cost like 200 bucks when they came out. So you mm. had to rent everything. But uh, we would do the the poor person thing and record uh, movies off of HBO. And yep. there was one tape that we had that had, you know, you get a long enough tape, you can put two or three movies on there. And yep. uh, we had one tape that was Aliens and the Fly. And that one, for whatever what reason, she just, she just kept tape. like, maybe it's because I was watching it too much, but like she took it away from me and like put it up on like the top of her dresser, not really realizing that kids fucking know that trick and we'll just climb up and grab it when she's out of the house uh but stand by me she was very specifically i remember her having doubts because we started watching it together and you know the opening scene in the clubhouse you know where they're playing Mm -hmm. cards and they're dropping f-bombs and stuff she's like "Mm," like i'm not sure about the language on on this and i'm just and i remember even back then my kid in my kid brain going yeah but i just watched freddy krueger slice that that lady up you know (laughs) yeah it's like that, that, that okay. Um, so I remember specific moments, but you're right in that, like King's just omnipresent for anybody born, you know, probably yeah. after 1975, like yeah. he's just always kind of, you know, been around and just known as like an icon of horror. Yeah. That's, he's that's like Coca-Cola. He's an institution. He's an institution. He is an institution. That's right. exactly right. I wasn't up and around alive and reading you know, when Stephen King first came on the scene and like Eric, it was a matter of absorbing him through, you know, uh, the books we picked up as kids and my mom read King. And, you know, uh, that's also a, a common thing that we found mm. among guests. But interesting. Um, but even that- still, it, it, there's that sense that he's just always been there. 
it's going to be the wildest thing when, you know, uh, time marches on, things happen. One day there will be no more Stephen King. That's going to be like, you know, a world without Bowie. You know what I mean? Like, or a world yeah. without Prince. You know, it's it's something yeah. that's in the air and that you're There's all, lots of imitators and, and nobody who quite does it the way they do it. Right. No. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, by the way, had we been doing a, uh, had, had, had this episode been focused on the long walk, we could have talked about that concept of imminent death down the road for everyone mm-hmm. and, and what right. it's like to live with that, with, with that concept. Yeah. <laughs> and just the, the, the innate horror of everyday life with that just always just an accepted yeah. dangling in the, the distance. Yeah. Dangling yeah, in with, the distance. With yeah. every step, we're just, yeah, walking towards our death. Yeah. Walking towards our death. And all of us yeah. are, and we're just looking at each other, walking forward, going, I guess this way. And, uh, um, uh, but we're not talking about that, but I do love that story a lot, man. I love that story, but, but, yeah. uh, but yes, it, it, it is horrible to think that you are here to talk about the mist though. We have talked about the mist on the show before, but th- this is one of those titles where there's so much to talk about with just this oh. one novella that we could theoretically do half a dozen episodes on the mist. And I think we still wouldn't have completely uh, conquered this beast. I just want to say, like, it's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It, 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 it just, I, it, it spoke to me. I just think it's brilliantly done. It's so moving and it's so real and it's, it's, cra- it's a crazy movie. It is a crazy movie. And it's, my, it's my so question hardcore. was going to be Sorry, why did you? Question? Well, my question was going to be why did you pick this title? But I think you just answered it. Is yeah, it, I, but, but I, you know, my follow up would be: is it more about? the movie than the source material for you? Like, which one did you come to first? Yeah, I, I've never read. I've never read it. Um, oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I've never read it. Um, and 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 now I kind of don't ever want to read it. I don't want to know. And I kind of thought it'd be fun for you guys to tell me some things about the source material <laughs> when discussing the movie. Um, and I thought it'd be kind of fun. I thought, A, that that would be a fun piece of it. And then, and then B, I just love the movie. Um, yeah. I think it's so bold. It is, you know, there's obvious. It reasons. is definitely that. <laughs> there's obvious reasons why it is very bold. But I could tell you some incredibly weird, subtle directorial choices that were made that would prove that Darabont has fucking balls of steel. They, <laughs> uh, he is fearless as a director, and I am in awe of it. It is so well, rad yeah. to see. Well, before we get to that, though, um, for anyone, I I have no idea how this is even possible, but for anyone who might be listening that is not familiar with either the uh, novella or the movie, would you mind laying out the the basic plot of this story? Like what what is the mist about? You you would like me to do that? Yeah, if you don't mind. (laughs) Sure. Uh, A a mist is rolling into a small town um, and a group of of locals essentially are forced into um, hiding in a large supermarket to survive uh, because there's clearly some the, the mist is bringing some sort of force or apocalyptic sense of destruction with it. And so uh, they take shelter in this um, grocery store. There is a struggle for power inside the grocery store amongst this giant group of people who are who are in there. The story immediately asks the question, like, what's worse, the the horrors 
of hell that exist outside these walls or being stuck um, in a supermarket with, you know, your the with a bunch of other locals, you know, right. just humanity, yeah. just <laughs> just being stuck with people. What's the what's the true terror? What's the true horror of the world? Is that enough of a synopsis or would you like me to keep going? No, that's sure. good. That's good. It kind of sets think- up the premise, right? Yeah, I yeah. think we can soft pedal like going into the details because I think most people are are familiar with this this yeah. this title. But yeah, let's let's talk about your thoughts on what uh what Darabont did with it. By the way, it's also it's also one of those movies. There, Stephen King has a way of like at times having stories that when you hear the title, you kind of know the first half of the story to some degree. You don't know mm-hmm. that you don't you don't totally know it, but like the mist, you're like okay, so there's scary mist. And it probably <laughs> the people are trying to not be in the mist and they're probably trying to stay indoors. Maybe I don't, you know, like you kind of put mm-hmm. together what the movie is based on just the, the, the title. Um, and I, I think that's true of the mist. Yeah, so, yeah. So I let's agree. talk about Darabont's balls. I want to hear, I want to hear more about <laughs> Darabont's balls. Something I noticed immediately <laughs> was a complete and utter lack of sound effects Mm. that were not in the 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 world of the movie. So like oftentimes in horror movies when the director shows you something scary, they'll play a loud sound or they'll play some noise or sometimes it comes from score, sometimes it, it sort of lives in the middle ground. But mm-hmm. that is there to make the audience jump. But it is always a cheat. You use stings not just in horror movies, you use them all the time for dramatic effects. When you, someone pulls out a gun, when someone shoots someone, when you know, for emotional effect, the uh, landing the impact of things. But it's all leaning on sound effects and music that don't exist in the reality of the world of the story. It's just added emotional uh, spice. I can't remember a moment in that movie where he used it. I think it was a choice to not use any of it. I think all of the sound effects are just the sounds of the creatures in the movie or the sounds of the things happening in the movie. I don't think he ever used a sting at all in the movie. No. Mm. I mean, he's this is Darabont when he's coming right off doing uh, a few episodes of The Shield, you know, which had a very naturalistic mm. uh, shooting style to it and... I think this is sort of an offshoot of that where it's very grounded. It's very, you know, like of the moment, not only in terms of what was the filmmaking technique that was getting to become popular then, but also like of the moment in the sense that you are there, like on the front lines of this fucking thing. So there's the, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of handheld cams in this very naturalistic. I I'm positive that, that, that that's, why that decision was made. Yeah. Also, zoom, zoom Frank in Darabont on faces and stuff. Yeah. Totally. Right. I, I, I uh, agree with and you. And also Darabont just doesn't strike me as a guy who like, he's not going to do a jump scare where it's going to be, Oh, it was a cat. And there's like a big violin sting on the soundtrack. That's just not <laughs> right. his fucking style. You know, that's not his style. I a hundred percent agree. But the thing is, is like between that fact and the fact that well, it, I don't know if this is true or not, but it feels like when I'm watching the movie that it's a two hour movie. And it feels like there's 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes of score in the movie. Mm. So it's very yeah. naked. The way the story is told is very naked. It's all presented, like you're saying, right? Like very naturalistic, but very naturalistic. You know, another movie <laughs> that comes to mind is like No Country for Old Men. It did all that where it's just very naturalistic. There's not score. There's not sound effects. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not a big cinematic thing. It's just, gr- it's just brutalist. The thing that makes this movie different than all those 
other movies to me is the content is so intensely hardcore. There's a piece of the sting that jolts you and makes it more intense of an experience, but it also reminds you that you're in a movie and it gives you an opportunity to laugh at yourself for being in the movie. It it becomes more of a popcorn movie, but when there's no sting, when there's no relief, when there's no music, it doesn't feel like a movie. It it starts to feel like, you know, United 90, five or uh, you, you know that movie it starts to yeah, feel 93 like yeah 93 sorry i'm, sh- sh- I'm my, wow i can't believe it because all, all, all that imagery from 9-11 and all on the, the anniversary the- of 9-11 you <laughs> can you believe it uh but but um all that stuff is so powerfully burned into my brain but yeah united 93 well i get never forget i guess i guess i forgot a little bit uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh but united 93 man like there's something about watching that movie where it's just, it's brutal. It, it, it's just, it, it, there is a feeling of just constant dread. And I really feel that when I watch the mist, like uh, these the sequences play out and you're just like something horrific just happened. And the movie doesn't g- give you any of the graces. It just happened. And it keeps going like life. Yeah. And it's so, yeah. So well, I mean, gnarly. you talk about, you talk about like brutalism, like it, that, that's something that Darabont like leaned into heavily. I mean, obviously the ending as well. I mean, we'll get to that in, in a minute, but, uh, yeah. uh, but the scene that I'm thinking of is how is the sacrifice of Sam Whitworth's character, right? right. Where, uh, and that's something that it wasn't done that way in the book. And so that, that was something that like, uh, was, was, uh, invented by Darabont really? when he wrote the script. And, and just that whole moment where you actually see the results of Miss Carbony uh, and her rallying her cult, essentially, and and making the sacrifice and the way Sam Witwer plays it, where he's an army guy, but he's not like doing badass John Wick stuff, trying to get away from the mob or whatever. He just, you know, he's getting bullied, essentially, and, and punched around and knocked up and knocked up. Uh, he's not knocked up. He's knocked <laughs> around. Uh as full wow, of the rest pregnant. of my knowledge, Sam Witwer's wow. never never been knocked up. I miss um, that scene. <laughs> to the best of your knowledge, yes. It got yes, real brutal, huh? Yeah, it got very brutal. Getting in some irreversible territory. Um, <laughs> Easy. But, uh, but, but then Te- he gets, technically, he gets, you don't know what happened to him, right? He gets pulled away into the mist, and you don't know what happens to him. So he could have you know, been knocked up in the mist by all those. He, he could, you never he could have, he, he could have been a, a spider daddy. That That <laughs> is for sure. Um, oh, geez. yeah, the, that's the only impregnation in the movie. I think is the, yeah. <laughs> is, is that poor, poor bastard that has all the spider eggs that burst out of him, which is a horrific scene too. But that sequence where he stabbed and he like leaves that bloody handprint on the, on the door. And like th- that to me is like the key moment in the movie that tells you, uh, or that's trying to prepare you for what's coming up at the end, right? Mm. That this is a guy who is has been nothing but helpful and likable, and he gets pushed around, he gets beat up, he gets stabbed, and the worst thing, he gets like shunned from his the society, right? And and sent out into the evils of the world by himself, and he's he's pulled, you know, he's he's taken out, and, and I don't know, it's it, it. The more I watch it, the more that that scene I think becomes a key to understanding what the movie is. Um, in, in, uh, in a way that like most people, I think focus on the ending or they'll, they'll focus on, you know, a little piece of, of the, the horror, the spiders or whatnot, like I, which is great. All that stuff's amazing. But like, I think the more that I think about it, the, that middle part 
with uh, Sam Witwer's character is kind of one of the keys to the movie. See, that's a that's good, interesting. That's, that's a good note. I, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're you're right that it sort of operates as a you know it's it, it portends the ending. You know, that's that's, right. a, that, that's a good point. It really is. You know, I it c- connected to that. You know, I, I I left the movie this time feeling like the movie was a conversation about whether or not humans are good. And, mm. you know, very early mm-hmm. on in the movie, they're in the back room, they're in the storage room, and they're, they're discussing that, right? They're, they're you know, um, what's her name? Oh, my God. Um, the, the, the lead woman in the movie. Um, 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 God, I can't remember her name. Sorry. But anyways, she... Um, Laura? Laura something? Yeah. Yeah. When her character is... Um, uh, she, you know, she, she like is like, come on, like all none of you have any Lori. faith in humanity. Lori Holden, Lori Holden, Lori, right? And we all found of, it. All of them were just these brutal realists of just like, no, you know, like, like the people are scared; they're just gonna fucking abandon you. It's everyone for themselves, and it's you know, it's right. it's this whole ideology, right? And I think right. that in a way. The movie's a conversation about that, right? There's this horrible thing happening outside, this horrible thing happening inside, which is worse, you know, uh, and 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 ha- and how we're, how humans deal with it. But I think the ending is also is is also a part of that conversation because in the car, the prevailing sense that we're doomed, humanity is doomed. It that's the sense in the car like the car when they start nodding at each other it's not just we're gonna die it's humanity's doomed it's it's our way of thinking about humans it was right and we're just fucked and so yeah. they they've converted her now at this point and she has conceded that that premise that central theme that's been discussed they obviously all kill themselves <laughs> and then they were wrong because moments yeah. later, what you see is an assembled force of humans working together for the greater good to like help push each back, other, to push, push back, back the evil, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to push back the evil. And I, yeah. I think that while the ending is like this fucking dark, horrifically brutal ending, I mean, man, it's one of the gnarliest endings of all time. I mean, it's so heavy. And then at the same time, it's actually what I love about it is it's actually a message of optimism and hope because uh-huh. it's like, it's, it's like, no, look, we can work together. We can accomplish things. We can beat back the creatures uh, from another dimension. You should have bet on us and not, yeah. and not killed yourself. Well, and what's awesome about that to me is, is what I love about movies is it's, it's, it plays so much on perspective. A good filmmaker uses perspective, like a weapon. And that's exactly what Darabont does here. Because if you told the story of what happened in this world in the mist, you could have been with the soldiers. You could have been the people that fight. That's its own movie. The, the people who fucking figured out how to push the mist back. Right. But that's not what the story is. And that's not what the way Darabont decides to focus on. He focuses on uh, a tragic tale in there and like yeah. and i've made this argument for a long time and i'm glad that you're echoing it here because you're saying it's an optimistic ending the ending to the mist is a is an upbeat ending just not for david drayton like exactly. the humanity wins humanity survives every other person on the planet that survives in this story this is the happiest ending that could possibly happen and but for this one person it is the happy ending is 
the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. Yep. Like yep. it would be better for him to have gotten eaten by a creature in the mist. Like yes. that would have been better. And now he has to, he, he he's cursed to live. He has to live after doing this horrific thing because he thought it was the right choice. Yes. And uh, I, I don't, I, I love this ending to death. I think I, I wrote a thing for ain't it cool. Like a long time ago where I essentially made a, a case for it. And it was one of the few articles I ever wrote that like went viral. It was like a top Reddit post and shit. Really? Yeah. Be, yeah. Because I, something I noticed was there was a, this whole series is right around that time where every website got that little bar at the bottom of the screen that was like popular around the web or whatever. And right. it was always, yeah. and it was always like some stupid clickbaity celebrity rag bullshit. And then it'd be like, Zergnet. and always negative and cynical. And it was always like the worst thing about star Wars or the worst thing here. And, and this is dumb. And one of them was like, I'm, gl- Here's I'm glad a- that I'm glad that's over by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. The internet's <laughs> a, a place of positivity and light. But the yeah. thing that caught my eye was there were multiple <laughs> stories about the worst endings of all time. And, multiple different articles that would pop up in there that I would never click anyway, but almost all of them had an image from the mist on there. And I'm like, well, fuck them. They don't understand. And then this is something that's still prevalent today. It's more prevalent today. I think in, in like mainstream criticism is saying that if something in a movie or a TV show makes you feel bad, it is bad. It's like, nope, sometimes that is, you know, storytelling my man, you know, or my lady, you know, whoever is writing this article. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, I've noticed that that's kind of become more of a common mainstream thought then. But anyway, back in the day, I, you know, I, I saw that and I, I decided to write more, by the way. Yeah. I, I decided to write a thing about like, nope, you're wrong. Actually, this is a, you know, th- this is far, it's le- legit. One of the best endings of a movie that's ever happened. And here's it's why. It's legit. One of the best endings. Yes. And, and, and Stephen King himself said, said so like he's, oh, uh, he th- that isn't the ending of the book. The, or the novella. It is. Uh, How does the novella end? This is what I wanted to know. I wanted to have this on a podcast. I wanted to know. Right. I want. I want. Yeah. Well, how does it end, well, Scott? Do you want to? Do you yeah. want to do the honors on this? Yeah. yeah um, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, they get out of the the market. You know, David David Drayton and uh, a number of others survivors. They go by his house. They realize the wife is dead, and so they kind of they they kind of just set off on the road to you know hopefully evade the mist and in, in, in the hopes that it has not spread, you come to find out that yes, it has spread, you know, it's, <laughs> it's been expanding in all directions. And the novella is written from David's first person point of view. So it ends with him like in a Howard Johnson's or something. And, mm. you know, he's been writing all this as essentially one long journal entry. And, you know, there's, there's the suggestion that uh, there may be other survivors out there and they need to be working toward that. And, it's sort of a hopeful note, but it sort of leaves everything hanging in the balance. It's like a 50-50 whether or not these people are going to survive. And it's totally left up to your imagination as to, you know, what the fuck humanity is going to do about the missed problem that they now have. Wow. It's so yeah. funny because you it's telling ambi- me that. Yeah. Ambiguous, oh, yeah. sorry. What's that? No, no. Yeah, it's ambiguous. Like right. they, yeah. they hear a they hear a, a radio message, yeah, and like like a brief snippet where they might hear uh, that there's some hope of survivors in in like another town, and right. uh, but it's like one word in between the static, so you're not even sure if that's something that the character imagined they heard. So it, right. it, it's way more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's interesting because I feel like I can hear the studio's conversation with Darabont. You know, they're talking about the movie, and the studio's going. 
but we got to have an optimistic ending, right? Like we can't <laughs> end it like that, right? <laughs> and and he's going, yeah, all right, I can, uh, I can, <laughs> I can give you guys a happy ending. How about this? How about at the end of the movie, we see like <laughs> all these soldiers roll in and 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 they've they've wiped away the mist. They we've won. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and, and also, by the way, and also, by- <laughs> yeah. What happens to the main characters? You don't need to worry about that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, it'll be in the script, but just know that I'm going to give you guys <laughs> the ending that you wanted, that you asked for. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to see to it that those characters are put firmly to bed by the time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and by the it's, way, it's, the main character should live. We think I think he should live. He'll survive the whole movie. So he makes it yeah. out. He gets rescued by the <laughs> the army. And you're good. We're good, right? Yeah, you're good. As long as you do that, you can make the movie. Great. I can't imagine how, you know, I, I guess it's a budgetary thing, you know. Um in fact, didn't we find that out at some point that they offered uh, Darabont a bigger budget if he yeah. changed the ending? Oh, yeah. Um, that's kind of part of the lore of the movie now. But like uh, I spent a couple of weeks on the set of The Mist and I remember one of my days there. Uh, I sat next to the, the Dimension exec that was on set. Um, and if you yeah, I mean, if you've ever been lucky enough to have been on a Frank Darabont set, you, you know that any uh, studio person there is is essentially there to watch. This isn't a guy that's going to control Darabont. That's the, one of the reasons why he's not making a lot of things, you know, at the moment, because he's not the easiest uh, director for studios to work with, but it's also why everything he's ever made, uh, even his lesser stuff is, you know, fucking leagues above most, what Mm -hmm. uh, most people make. Um, But he's not a political animal. So it was very clear that this uh, dimension exec was just there to go like, yep, he's going to do what he's going to do. But he, he told me, Specifically, because it, it turned out I was one of the only people that had read the ending that was on the set. Like most of the crew wow. was hired without them getting the ending. And I, the only reason I'd read it is because um, Darabont knew my work from Ain't It Cool. And like for years before making The Mist, he would send me like he we would be in contact. And he sent me like his script for Fahrenheit 451. And he sent me and like I'm talking like physical snail mail, like bound paper script. Uh, and he sent me the script for The Mist. He knew I was uh, I was a huge Stephen King nerd. And uh, and so like I read The Mist probably three or four years before he made it. And it had the ending on. But a, and when I mentioned that to the Dimension exec, he was like, like surprise going levels like you got lucky because we're keeping all that under wraps and then that's what like spurned him to go it's like you know we offered him double the budget if he would change that ending and he refused and and uh so i think the movie ended up being like 20 or 25 and so they offered him like you know 40 to 50 to make it but he said you know no i just did all the stuff as scott mentioned he worked on the shield he's like i know how i can shoot it in a way now that'll you know cut shooting days and you know and uh, and he essentially did a lot of that came from him uh, being unwilling to kind of sacrifice the the ending which i think in the long term is not only the best thing for the movie but the best thing you know for the movie the story in the movie but for the movie itself and i think this is going to be something people bring out and surprise people who may have not seen this with this because it's the kind of movie you show somebody you're like you get like you're watching the movie together and then like the last five minutes you're not watching the movie if you've seen it you're watching the face of the person who hasn't seen it you (laughs) know how fun yeah you know that's super cool um and and very true um um i i haven't watched it with someone who hasn't seen it in a very long time did you see it when it was in theaters 
I did see it in the theater. I'm trying to think how many times I've seen it. Well, I asked because I'm curious what the audience response was to the ending in the theater you saw it in. I, you know, I don't I don't I actually don't remember. I really no. don't remember. I, I my memory sucks. Uh, People got sadly. vocal about it in the in the theater I was in. Oh, I like, believe that they did not like that ending. Oh, boy. And I'm, I'm just sitting there yeah. like, are you fucking kidding me? That was great. I remember one of the because I saw it a few times in the theater and I remember one of them. I don't remember if it was an early or you know later in the run screening, but I rem- I do remember that there was that great moment that happened sometimes where you can tell half the audience is fucking pissed off and half of the audience is in love, right? Mm. Where there's like smattering of applause and, you know, but you can tell the ones that are clapping at the end are like super into it and not just like a pity clap, you know? Yeah. Uh, but that happens every once in a while. And and uh, I don't know, it's, it's one of the little mini... Uh, things about the theatrical experience that I kind of hold on to and cherish because I as much as I love being in a crowd that just fucking loves a movie um, I love being in a crowd that either gets partially annoyed or fully annoyed by the end yes. of a the movie there's oh yes the 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 example that pops up into my brain and it's the reason why I saw this movie like three or four times in the theater was to hope to get this reaction and I got it every single time was Inception and mm. every single time I, I saw Inception, uh, which is, as a movie, I think is is fine. Like, I, I think it's a pretty movie. I think the acting's really good. I'm not like married to the movie. Like, I'm obsessed with it. Love it. But I love the ending and I love experiencing that with people who had never seen it because mm. every single uh, crowd was like had an ah whenever it cuts on the top. Not, you know, right. and you don't know what what's going to happen. And I just love that. I don't know. That's part of I the rem- communal experience. I remember I that, too. But it, I, I remember the, the like, oh, being like good natured. You know, people. Yes. People. Yeah. It was like, you know, having a magic trick pulled in front of you yeah. or something. Fair game. You know? Fair game. But um, yeah, right. Right. But uh, the one I always think of is and I consistently forget the name of this movie because it's similar to like a billion other Exorcist movies. But it's that one where it's like in Italy. It's a found footage thing. And at the end. It yes. Ran, it like, you know, some people will argue this point with you. I would argue that it literally just stops. And then a thing pops yeah. up on screen that's just like in so many words saying like, if you'd like to know more, go to this website. And the audience I saw that movie with fucking turned on that movie quicker than I have ever seen a group (laughs) of people turn on. Like people were yelling at the fucking screen. It was, it was magical. I will never, ever forget that. That and um, Batman and Robin opening weekend. I saw that and the audience (laughs) was not on board with that, what that movie was doing. (laughs) Oh, that was funny. Good times. Yeah, uh, we missed the times. theatrical experience. I, I do miss the theatrical experience, man. I really do. Um, you know, this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I was going to say that I think one of the hurdles the movie had. Mm. And and listen, I, I, I am no one to criticize Darabon. I mean, he's the he's incredible. But I do think that the 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 scene my least favorite scene in the movie hmm. is the, te- the them fighting the tentacle. You know, you know what I'm talking about. In the loading about? bay. In the loading yeah. bay. Okay. And I think it's the it's got the worst visual effects in the movie. Right. Agreed. And there are aspects of the way this, the mechanics of the action play out that feel clunky. Like right. there, there's a shot right before he gets pulled out where he where 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 the the the, the grocery store kid like 
stops. He lets go. He turns and looks at them, stares at them for a second, and then gets ripped out, which didn't, which sort of broke, which that's something someone does in a movie. Right. But not in reality. And this was such a grounded in reality movie that that moment was, and there's just little moments, like little micro things like that, that exist nowhere else in the movie. And I felt like that scene is the first time we see a creature. Mm-hmm. And we don't see a creature again for, I don't know, another 20 minutes or something, or, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and so for a big piece of the movie in your mind, the picture you're painting in your mind is they're, they're up against some clunky, not good looking CG thing out in the mist. And I think that that had an effect on audiences that from that moment on kind of checked out of the movie and the next encounter when those bugs are landing on the window yeah. is unbelievable. It is just one of the the, the greatest sequences of like ho- monster movie magic. I mean it is mm-hmm. it is just incredible and it's unfortunate that um that the that, crappy that, that CG tentacles kind of set the set the, the set the tone, set the stage for the movie and and um it happens right there. It's it's that 22 minute mark action you know it's that it's that set piece that happens at 22 minutes into a movie that like kind of sets the tone for the rest of the movie i think that's the reason why you get that ending the the ending that we all love is because you know that's kind of the sacrifice you have to make because that's where the budget would have would have held that extra money that dimension wasn't willing to pony up with that ending on on board um and you know and 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 the right choice i i stand by i mean he he's incredible right like i i don't have a bad thing to say about him is is absolutely the right way to go funnily Um, enough i remember seeing that because they that was a sequence they showed at comic-con like to promote the movie and i remember writing that up and getting a kind of a an angry email from uh, uh a guy named everett burrell who was the vfx supervisor um essentially going he try, trying to take me to task and he was a, he's he somebody i was very friendly with and we've since made peace on it but uh uh he's somebody that i'd, I'd kind of known because i got in with a lot of the effects guys because uh, he started as a a, a practical effects background like he, i don't think he worked at knb but he worked within that circle like mm. with those people and i knew nicotero pretty well and, and howard Berger and those guys and uh so i kind of knew him through that and i think he felt a little betrayed because i i wrote i wrote that uh i wrote up the footage and i had the same critique as you did i'm like as somebody who's lived with this scene in his mind for a long time like i expected a little bit more from this a cg tentacle especially because i saw on set i saw all the practical stuff that they were doing and right. it was really good and really cool and i was and i was just sitting there going like why you had you already had like a, a cool you know, a rubber tentacle, at least it was real, you know, and the, this other thing is like this undulating, like uh, it, it almost felt like prequel level of, of uh, CG at, at, you know, the bad yeah. parts of the prequels where it, it didn't feel in the space that it was in. Um, that yeah. said, like I've, I've grown to kind of appreciate it, especially the design of it. Cause that scene also introduces like the tentacles, like opening up and having like the mouths instead of like individual suckers and stuff. They have like this yeah. claw mouth thing that, that happens. And I actually kind of really like that design, but yeah, no, I, I get it. I get, I get that thing. And, and it's one of the reasons why I think the black and white cut is so loved by fans. Cause I think that that hides a lot of, um, yeah. a, a lot of the dodgy CG. Yeah. I, I, I believe that, and 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 you know, I think that it's a tough thing, right? Because I, as a filmmaker, I don't, I don't. It's not my job to 
like I'm not a film reviewer, you know, and it's right. not my job to have hot takes on other filmmakers <laughs> work. You know, it's sort of my job as a creative to be supportive of other creatives, you know? And so I, I never like, this is part of the reason why I don't like Twitter. It's, uh, be, I don't like have, being on Twitter is like, it's not my job to like form, form these thoughts and these opinions, but the movie's, you know, f- 15 years old now or almost 15 mm-hmm. years old. And I think looking back, being overly incredibly optimistic about and positive on, on the movie and obviously on the, the, the visual effects work in the movie is unbelievable for the time. I mean, it, the, some of the stuff is so good, but it's sort of okay to say that scene, I think, you know, there's something about it that didn't work and you're exactly right. It is. It, the answer to that is often a dollar sign, you know, right. a studio being like, we're not giving you any more money. And and the result of that is a bunch of really talented people like that that, that effects artists and Darabonals, all, all these guys trying to do their absolute best using the best minds that that humanity can throw at at the problem, but not being able to solve the the not enough money, not enough time situation on that scene, right. and 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 it happens. It's 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 the process of making a movie. Um, but it's always tricky for me to be critical because, right, uh, right. especially of a movie I love so much. But yeah, right. And just as a working filmmaker, you don't want to be out there stepping on dicks. You know, no. I w- I wouldn't either. I follow no. some filmmakers on Twitter that are pretty, you know, outspoken uh, in terms of other movies, the stuff they love, the stuff they don't love, and I always think like. You got to be really careful. I, like, I don't think I would be doing that. I think I would just no, no. have to, you know, set the precedent that, well, I'm just going to keep a lot of this shit to myself. And I've kind of set that precedent anyway, even though I'm not involved with the film industry, because like a lot of the, a, a lot of times something will come out and it's um, I'm trying to think of a recent example. Well, I'll tell you this. Like when the first Wonder Woman came out, that was a huge moment. Everyone fucking loved Wonder Woman. I was all upbeat when I went and saw it. I was ready to love mm-hmm. it. You know, I'd heard nothing but the good things. I just didn't really like that movie. The whole third act of it just sank the entire experience for me. Oh, it's terrible. The mm. third act is terrible. I, I love the first two thirds of that movie, but yeah, the third but, act is, but is that really third act is just yeah. unforgivable and clearly chopped to fucking pieces. Someone went through that thing with a machete. <laughs> yeah, and, it doesn't make a damn bit of sense. And right. yeah, um, but I just kept my mouth shut. You know, this was a moment, right. and it was a moment for you know uh, for women. It was a moment for comic book fans. It was. It was a moment where, like, you know, Warner Brothers was getting its its DC shit kind of back on track. And even though I didn't think this completely uh, resolved the issues that they were having, it felt like, what what is the point for shitting on this parade right now? Like, right, it's, right. it's not going to get right. anywhere. What, what, what are you going to get me anywhere? Right. It's not going to get anyone else anywhere. So I do I, I do understand the the idea of you know, not letting those opinions fly all the time. Yeah. It's just, but, yeah. but, but the other thing is, you know, when two things, number one, like, like I, I, I hear what you're saying I, I, to me. I like, I, I get the desire to cr- critique movies online as a filmmaker or to say your opinion, because, because your opinion has value because you're also a filmmaker. And so maybe it, it, everyone has to make the decisions for themselves. I'm not critical sure. of anyone who, who does, uh, th- that's their decision. It's fine. Um, um, I just don't like doing it. And and one of the things to me is that the margin between huge success and huge failure is in, often an, an incredibly thin membrane. You mm-hmm. know, uh, how many stories do you hear about 
Forrest Gump, that everyone thought Forrest Gump was going to be a disaster and that the studio didn't want to make Forrest Gump and, you know, and they were cutting the budget and everyone was fucking, you know, and then the movie comes out and the studio never saw good reviews coming. They were just like, what is happening? You know, that happens in in so many places. And, and, you know, it's funny. You learn a lot when you test a movie. You put a movie in front of a test audience. And for weeks, you've been micromanaging. Oh, what if we cut to this shot? What if we go into a close-up? What if we do this? What if we do that? And like every detail. And then you put it in front of an audience. And they sit there and they go, I didn't like the movie. And you go, why? And they're like, well, (laughs) there was a moment in the middle of the movie where this happened. And I was like, fuck that. I'm out. This character was wearing a blue shirt 40 minutes into the movie. And I did not take that kindly. Yeah. Didn't like it. Looks stupid. Yeah. Like this, this outfit looks stupid. And I just it kept pulling me out of the movie. I didn't like it, you know, or what, whatever it is. It's like, it's like the, 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 these random things that take this movie and make it unwatchable for people or just insufferable for people or, or, or just completely break the, the reality of the movie for people. And you see how thin the veneer or the, the thin, the margin is between success and failure and, and, and a movie working and a movie not working and, and all of the components or a scene working and not working. And so to me, it's hard to be critical of anyone because there's so much that goes into it. As long as a person was doing everything they could to, to make it work, fighting the fight (laughs) for, you know, uh, I don't know, imagination and creativity and, and trying to do something different. And at the same time, fighting the forces of the practical reality that push against all these movies, time, money, um, other people, other, other, you know, powers above you, all of those things that are crushing and pushing away from the thing that you're trying to make. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, you know, there's, Hmm. there's parts of my own movies where I'm like, well, that, that effect didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but hopefully the rest of the movie is enjoyable enough that people won't notice it. And so, and so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a unique feeling about hmm. filmmaking I have, I guess. Yeah. You, yeah. you know what I like is uh, uh, when I see filmmakers do like, I, even if the petty side of me likes it when, you know, uh, a Shia LaBeouf will go out there and say, yeah, it, you know, Crystal Skull kind of sucked, you know, or whatever. Like I'm also, I'm also in the back of my mind going, you done fucked up, son. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, what, what what the fuck you think you're doing right now, buddy? Um, and uh, but what I love seeing filmmakers use social media for is not to snipe at each other, but to essentially kind of put their foot down against toxic fans. So Ryan Johnson's mm. done this. Uh, uh, James Gunn does this a lot. And it's in Gunn does it <laughs> yeah, in a very yeah. interesting interesting way because he you know johnson got a big like kind of blowback for how he handled the the quote-unquote like man babies who fucking couldn't handle that luke skywalker didn't do like 40 backflips and cut and add add in half or whatever um but like what james does very well is is he'll take all this clickbait bullshit and he'll just go nope untrue (laughs) and he'll just instantly you know set the record straight uh james mangold is another one who Mm -hmm. is great at this where where he'll go out and just go ah you know don't listen to to this you know fucking not her specifically but he'd be the one to be like you know nope grace randolph doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about here's here's the real truth and you know that that kind of stuff that's what i think is like at least for movie fans the best use of of um uh you know kind of a strong stance from a filmmaker on on social media 
Yeah. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So the, one of the producers of my first movie, The Hive, used to work at ILM way back in the day. He worked on uh, some of the Star Wars movies. And yeah. I mean, he, he was doing everything. He was early ILM, right? So he was doing all those movies, you know, from Ghostbusters, you know, and he's, he's in the room with all these people, that, you know, throughout the process of it. And so I'd always be like, tell me stories, tell me stories. And one day I realized, oh, my God, did you work on Howard the Duck? <laughs> oh, yeah, I worked on Howard the Duck. And I'm like, oh, my God, tell me about Howard the Duck. What was it like? And the thing that he told me, which was always stuck with me forever, was, you know, I had just been working on all these Star Wars movies. I don't remember if in the timeline if he was working on Roger Rabbit before or after, hmm. but he's working on all these iconic movies. And somewhere in the middle of all this, he's working on Howard the Duck. And to him, the work was the exact same. Uh, he had no concept if the movie was going to work or not on the screen. It was the same work for him and for his teams of people, the same incredible achievements and like unbelievable out of the box thinking to execute really complicated effects in a time that existed before digital was like, you know, made things a little easier. He was like to us, you work on a shitty movie, you work on a good movie. It, it, you have no idea, you know, it just, it's just, it's all just a lot of really hard work. And, and that always stuck with me because when you shit on a movie, you're often um, not just shitting on like the director being like, this director's not good, right? You're saying like, oh, the effects suck. So now you've just said like 400 artists <laughs> in multiple countries can go fuck themselves, you know, because they got handed this shot and you didn't like the way it was done. And it's like, dude, these guys are all, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just a, I, I feel like these guys are incredible artists who work really hard on the movie. And, you know, even if you don't like Crystal Skull, mm -hmm. the funny thing about it is there are still people who worked really hard and did a good job on the movie. It's just the sum total of, of, of the movie didn't work for you for a mm -hmm. number of reasons. Right. What I'm saying is a bad movie just needs to make one bad decision. Uh, and it can make a million good decisions, but that one bad decision could ruin the movie for you. And uh, I don't know. Sometimes it's still important to notice the nine nine hundred ninety nine thousand <laughs> other decisions that, that were made on the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, if the uh, if the tentacle attack sequence is your least favorite in the sequence in the movie, what's your what's your your pick for best sequence in this movie? I think I, I, I think uh, the, the ending's incredible, but I, I, I think that the the encounter with the bugs landing on the on the glass all the way through the uh, the those like pterodactyl things breaking through and attacking the bugs mm -hmm. and the whole encounter that is incredible. That scene is incredible. I mean, it is a master class in tone. The way it went from scary to there was some surreal sense of wonder and beauty in these like monstrous things crawling right. on the glass. And then suddenly the danger starts growing as you realize they're breaking the glass. And I, I mean, it's just it is an expertly crafted. It is. Right. Un, it's totally it's amazing. It just keeps escalating as it goes along. And then it keeps escalating. And then it goes right into the fucking pharmacy scene with the spiders, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. You know, that it's just correct. It, he's just it, stacking it, creature moment on creature moment right. on creature moment. And and the spiders are fucking terrifying. I don't I don't like terrifying. That. It constantly <laughs> it's constantly surprising. Like You're never like, oh, not this again. It's like, what's mm. going to happen now? You never know what's going to happen. It's constantly changing the 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 way it's telling the story, the way horror, the way scares are being presented. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's so well done. 
So. Yeah. Well, and look at the escalation of everything in the movie. You, I mean, you start with you just see a tentacle. You then you have the the little bugs, and then the little bugs are eaten by big pterodactyl things that break in, and and the little bugs and the pterodactyl things are fucking up humans left and right. And then it's gross ass baby spiders, and it's big spiders, you know. And then like all this stuff's happening, and then they leave, and you realize, and they see the behemoth that's crossing the road. And you realize all this shit that has been the most nightmarish stuff for them are like the lice of this world. Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. like that, that, that moment yeah. is, to me is one of my favorites in, in the movie is, is that me too. just sinking wow. realization that everything that they've thought was the worst of the worst is basically the fleas of what's actually out there, yes. you know, and that there it's are these other shit. things that are, that are so big that it doesn't, you know. They're inconsequential, you know, almost it's so big as to not be terrifying anymore beyond a mental break kind of insanity terrifying because this thing crossing the road isn't going to turn and say, I want to squash this thing any more than we, you know, these people in the car any more than we would like kind of be walking down the sidewalk and notice, you know, fucking three ants, you know, uh, totally you know yes. on the side and going after them. Like, no, it, it's beyond, it, it makes this kind of existential Lovecraftian. We yeah, are a cosmic just, horror. It, it's cosmic. It cosmic. It's cosmic. Yeah. We're insignificant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And right. Darabont totally accentuates that by like cloaking that, that huge thing in mm-hmm. so much mist that you can see, you can see the silhouette of it. And it's doing weird things like the 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 fucking the body of the thing has like things coming off of it and things at weird right. angles. And you're not really it, it shows it to you just long enough for your brain to register. I don't understand what I'm looking at. And then it's over. You know, it's, <laughs> I, it's you know, such a perfect moment. I agree. I actually assumed that those things that were coming off it were all penises and it was just hundreds uh-huh. of, of penises. <laughs> a giant dick elephant is coming. Yeah, it's the a giant dick elephant. Yeah, a terrifying <laughs> moment. Uh, <laughs> it is a Stephen, is Stephen King creation, so you're probably not too far off. <laughs> yeah, could be some dick um, action in there. But I agree. And it's also it's a weird moment because, again, a, a movie that's so naked of score is for the first time in the entire movie having a moment that's driven by score and the score is so mm. haunting and, and surreal and, and like it's out like of that body. wailing, that yeah. wailing, you know, yeah. Singing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's creating a tone that isn't like, it's not just being like, look at the scary thing. It's being, it's saying like, like you despair, like, like you're saying <laughs> despair, like you're yeah. nothing. Like yeah. you don't mean shit in this world. Mm. Right. You're an ant in our elephant dicks, new habitat. <laughs> I should yeah. also point out just Take just out. so we're we're recognizing a, a a moment from this movie that isn't effects driven, but the sequence where Melissa McBride is trying to get someone to walk her back home is just heart wrenching, and it's, it's such a fucking powerful moment. You can you can see just like watching that scene, the entire cast is like leaning in towards her. You know, everyone is everyone is fully buying that fucking moment. It, she sells yeah. it so well. It's it's a masterclass. And by the sure. way, coming back to the theme of Frank Darabont has balls of steel. Mm-hmm. Um new t-shirt idea for the King cast by the way. Frank Darabont <laughs> has balls of steel. Um uh show me a director, writer director who will introduce you to a character and about 15 minutes in the movie will have a a, a crying woman beg him for help. <laughs> and as your lead character and he'll be like no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep and let her walk into the mist 
to make to what you think in the moment is she's gonna die. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's and a very good point. That is balls of steel. Holy well, shit! And, how do and you not, the, how, not yeah, only that, but the button he puts on it by having showing her and her kids on the convoy truck driving by David Drayton and his the dead fucking body of his child in the in the in the car. Like if he had chosen to help her and him and his kid had gone, his kid would still be alive. If yeah. you realize that, uh, uh, no, a hundred percent. That's the that, but that's that's connected to what we were saying. Is is a, it? Yeah. It's a moral tale. It's it's it, you know this movie, The Mist, is strangely closely related to um, Uncut Gems. His misbehavior is that he's constantly betting against humanity. <laughs> yeah, you know he's a good dude, but he bets against humanity, and it cost him in the beginning because that would have been he would have made it out, and then it cost him at the end because he would have made it out. It's his, it's his, it's his fucking like lack of faith in, in, in humans. That is ultimately his demise. Yeah. Which is kind of earned by the way, because we, we haven't like talked about Mrs. Carmody at all. And and Mrs. Carmody is kind of the face of uh, weirdly enough. When I see like the, the worst of the worst of like the MAGA chuds or the alt right or these anti masker kind of people, like in my mind, like I flash on, Miss Carmody specifically as Marsha Gay Harden plays her, you know, where it's just mm-hmm. these people who are just so it's not that like I, I she's being manipulative for power reasons, but in her mind, she's explained it away as this is the best thing for this community. And I know that this is the right way and appeasing the, the, the monsters and appeasing our God, our vengeful God is the way to survive this. I, I love I love her as as the face of the the human face of she's, a villainy in the movie. She's incredible, and that archetype you're talking about exists in um, in all times. I mean, you know the 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 High Sparrow in Game of Thrones mm-hmm. uh, uh, used the same pious, um, self righteous uh, set of bullshit to to uh, amass an army of people around them. I mean, it's just it's it's a repeating concept through. Right. Through time, it is an interesting aspect of humanity. <laughs> right. It's not. It's not a great aspect of right. humanity, but it's an interesting one. And it. And 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 it's 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 it. She is really great in the movie, and and it really does perfectly create the. She, you know, she's the main villain in the movie, right? And and right. so it does perfectly create this scenario where you don't need to have a character sit there and go well i gotta ask myself is it worse in here or out there with the monster you know it's like (laughs) it's like you you're asking yourself that you're like i get the fuck out of there i deal with the mist they're all gonna like start like cutting each other's heads off and pouring the blood on each other's head as a sacrifice you know you don't know like it could get real fucking dark in there real fast so yeah like (laughs) humans are more predictable right it's so Yeah, they're more predictable in, in their evilness. And, and uh, you know, I guess that's the the whole thing, I guess, breaks down to the, the devil, you know, versus the devil you don't. Right. Because mm-hmm. you can't see what's out there. Yeah. You don't know what what you've only seen little hints of what could possibly be out there uh, you know, in the mist. And uh, uh, totally. yeah, so it's a fear of the unknown versus, you know, can I deal with, you know, this increasingly terrifying thing that's happening right inside here, you know, in this mm. supposedly safe space. Yeah. I will say, and just tell me to shut up when 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 we've run out of time here. But <laughs> I, I, I'll say in a in a in a kind of non sequitur, the the opening 
15 minutes or 12 minutes, it's really the first 12 minutes of the movie are so good. The movie moves so fast. You know, there's a, there's a trope in, in movies of like a epic scale, but I'm, I'm struggling to think of movies before this that have done it as good. uh, Certainly uh, a quiet place Two, the opening to a quiet place Two plays with this, but you're watching Mm -hmm. this movie and you know, you know, what's coming, you know, that there's a big catastrophic, uh, potentially apocalyptic event that's occurring, Mm. but the, the main character doesn't yet. Mm-hmm. And you know it because you've seen the trailer, you know, because you know you're what right. you're watching, but there's nothing that says it. And then the filmmaker starts throwing the subtlest of clues at you that something is leaning in that direction. And that's all you need to be feel a real sense of dread and a real sense of tension. You know, like the army trucks pass their cars. They're going and they're like, wow, they're mm-hmm. going fast. That's all you need yep. to know. And in my head, I'm painting a whole fucking story about yeah, what, where yeah. they're going. Why are they running? Over <laughs> right. here? You know, it's like it, and 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 it, it's so well done. And I don't know. It made me uh, nostalgic for the, you know, I don't know, that, that trope uh, that they used to do in movies. Uh, they also did it in Last of Us. The the, the first mm-hmm, 10, right? 30 minutes oh, yeah. of the Last of Us game are just, you know, <laughs> that's that. that shit is so anxiety inducing. When you're playing through that, (laughs) you're like, we uh, we are about out of time here, but uh, I do want to loop back around to um, uh, night books before we wrap up. Ah, Um, yes. We talked about, you know, uh, you know, your, your work (laughs) with uh, Raimi up front, but now that the movie is available on Netflix, uh, what can you tell people about the movie? What's the plot? What, uh, what are you most excited for people to discover in this thing? You know, hit us with, I mean, Sure. It's weird to pitch the movie. I mean, it, you know, it's 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 I, I, I think what I love about the movie. I, well, there's a lot of things I love about the movie. I guess it's you know, it's 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 fun because it, it's a movie to me that that feels so different than really anything. It's, it's a pretty unique movie. It, it has its own kind of tone. And and it's made with a lot of love. So it's a, it, it, you know, I think there's a lot of emotion in the movie and a lot of heart in the movie, I think, comes through. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I'm not great at, like, pitching the movie. Uh, uh, I just make them. The studio pitches them to people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, but, I can but, tell you one of the things that I love be, beyond the whole gateway horror aspect to it is that it's something that fully embraces creativity. Yeah. And, you know, the pretty much the thesis of the statement of the movie is, you know, is is creativity can can save you if you're in trouble. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like it's like I because it's uh, it's all about a, a kid who's kidnapped by a witch. But like the witch uses his ability to tell scary stories uh, and is drawn to that. And that is what he's he does. Is he writes her stories and she for the most part shits on them, but she's intrigued by it. So in a weird way, the witch is Twitter. Uh, it all comes back. to Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I wanted at times their relationship and the dynamic of telling the story to her to feel very much what it feels like for a creative to share the work they've done, you know? Right. Um, it, you know, there's so many little moments like him dragging the stool over and stuff that are just sort of baked out of, like your experience going in, you know, as a creative now, my job, I go in, into a room and I sit and I go, Hey, I want to make this movie and, and this will happen. And this will happen. I'm telling, I'm telling them a story and they're sitting there blinking at me. And I don't know if they like it, if they hate it, sometimes they'll interrupt <laughs> me. You know, it's, and it's a tense, it's very tense and uncomfortable. 
Um, and I, I wanted to, to, to create that, that sense for people, you know, to tell the horror of being a creative person in every aspect of it. So, so I, you know, I, I agree with you. I appreciate all those things you said. I, I'd also extend the, the thesis that I think that it's, it, it's saying something even bigger, which I think is that, that creativity is a form of magic and that storytelling is a form of magic is, you know, like I can say some words to you and I can change the, the chemistry in your brain. I can make you feel an emotion. I can make you cry by just saying some words out loud. Um, I can change your mind about things. I can open you up to new possibilities. I can convince you one way or another. Um, I can make you fall in love with a character or hate a character. It's magic. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a powerful thing. And, um, and so I, I think that is really um, thematically at the center of a lot of the stuff in the movie. There's certainly, the, you know, there's, there's, there's a bunch going on about individualism and about uh, not letting the, the world take all the fun out of you <laughs> You're right. uh, and, and, and stomp it out. But, but there's also a, a, a theme right there in the middle there that is about, uh, is about the magic of storytelling. Right. Right. And for the fans of the mist, there's also kind of creepy little spider things in it, too. So that's true, too. That is true, too. <laughs> <laughs> also, Kristen Ritter fucking rules in it. Yeah, she's great in it. She's so good. She's so good. I'm so happy with what she brought to this movie and, and working with her was just incredible. And uh, yeah, it, I'm excited for people to see her as this villainous, crazy witch. <laughs> she's clearly <laughs> having a ball with that shit. I'll tell you. Did I ever yeah. tell? Just speaking of the magic of and and the power of story, I, 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 this is a. I read this article once that just had this profound impact on me. It really made me like just just. Uh, I'll tell it quickly because I know we're out of time. But but, um, I read this story. These these people escaped from North Korea, and they were like, "Hey, why why did you escape from North Korea?" And uh, you know, it, it's a big deal. It's not easy to just get out of North Korea. So like, what was the thing that changed your mind that made you realize you know potentially you were being brainwashed and you needed to escape? And they said they um, there are these balloons that fly into North Korea and like and like drop things on us, you know, and 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 that's how we get things. The things get like imported from from other places on, on these balloons. And one day Titanic came in on a DVD <laughs> and landed somewhere. And we saw the movie Titanic and a man sacrificed himself for a woman. And it felt so emotionally true like it, it was something that when they saw it they under they were like yes i i love this person like i would die for this person yeah and at the same time i guess i don't know anything about the <laughs> culture in north korea but i guess there's there's an, an aspect of it that that's something that they would never promote it's like mm -hmm. the idea of a man dying for a woman and so they saw this great difference between the stories that they were being told by the, their government and the stories that were being told in the world. And they found truth and emotional resonance in, in those stories. And they said, we got to get the fuck out of here. And they snuck out to me. That was sort of a, a gasping moment where I was like, that's the power of a story. That's the power right. of storytelling. What mm -hmm. an incredible thing. It can, it can change people's whole worldview right. um, in, in an instant if, if it's emotionally true and if it resonates. And, and that to me is magic. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think, I think Ebert called movies empathy machines and 
And, uh, you know, I think for the great majority of people who watch them, you know, they have a deeper and broader understanding of the world and human emotion because of it. So I, I agree with you. And I'm sure that translates to novels and any form of storytelling. But Any uh, form of story. Right. For exactly. Sure. exactly. But yeah. But we've kept you for long enough. And thank All you so right. much, Yarvo. This is. So yeah. yeah. You know what we didn't do? I just want to what say. Did we and do? we don't have. We're out of time. That's fine. We never fucking talked about Overwatch. And we never talked that. about it. <laughs> yeah, it, we'll, we'll do a bonus episode where you just tell everybody what a good healer I am. So <laughs> that's fine. We can do that. We can do that. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. This was this was a blast. And uh, do come back sometime. Maybe, oh, maybe for, please. Maybe for your next project, which maybe, please. maybe it'll be Brightburn Terry. We don't know. We'll find out. We don't. We don't know. We don't know. And if it was, I would. You just might have already made it. it and just never told <laughs> anybody. <laughs> I might have. All right, thanks, you. Yeah, I, I would lie if I had. Um, um, I know um, you dude, would. It, it, it was good. To, <laughs> it was good to, uh, uh, to to finally get to talk to you, man. Yeah, you too. And you know, seriously, come back sometime. This was great. Thank you. I I would love to. Many thanks to Yarvo for joining us for that once again spirited discussion and any excuse to talk about the balls of Frank Darabont, cast iron or, or not, uh, is something I will always uh, take. Yeah, yes, indeed. Uh, I feel like we've we've talked about the mist a couple times, and I I still feel like we haven't. There's there's so much territory to explore in that story. Oh yeah. Um, no, it's one of the, time, the best, we, the best stories. It's a cool movie. It's, you know, there, there's lots yeah. of angles and, and especially, you know, where we had Yarva was kind of on our side with how rad the ending is. And we know, uh, Mr. Brian Fuller is not quite on that train and, uh, he has <laughs> promised at some point to come in and argue with us about that. So that'll be a fun one whenever that one should happen. Yeah. Um, that'll definitely be the next time you hear about the miss on the show. And also next time we do this, I want to get more, a little more into, uh, the Arrowhead project. Mm. Sort of dig into that. That's one of my favorite little nerd topics within the subgenre of Stephen King topics. But yeah, let's explore that one a little bit. All right. But yeah, Note. thank you for Yarbo for coming out. And you all should uh, check out uh, Nightbooks as soon as you can on Netflix. Yeah, especially if you got kids and you have kids that are kind of right in that era of like dipping their toes into horror and wanting to watch scary stuff and maybe still too scared of it. It's like... It's a it's a really good mix for for that stuff. Yeah, so perfect, especially for, for the King Cast dads and moms out there. <laughs> King Cast dads, that one's for you. There's <laughs> you there's our new beer King koozie. Cast mom and dad shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the Disneyland shirts. The yeah, what would we have to do? Like, guess Annie Wilkes might be the outline for the mom, and or no, just do Wendy and Jack. Perfect. Yeah, it's it's got to be Wendy, Wendy and Jack. Wendy and Jack. What was I even thinking about? Annie Wilkes, you go sit in that corner. Um, cool. All right. So what do we got coming up? We got, uh, two exciting episodes. Uh, our Patreon this, this Friday is really fun and really long. And our episode next week is also really fun and really long. So you're going to get lots of long stuff here coming up soon. Next week in the main feed, we are tackling another one of the dark tower novels. Those of you who've been listening to the show from the beginning know that occasionally we will take on an entire dark tower book as an episode, but we like to space those out, make them special events. They're few and far between. Uh, so far, we've done The Gunslinger with Damian Eccles and Wizard and Glass with Anthrax's Scott Ian. Next week, we are coming back with one of our absolute favorite titles in the entire Dark Tower series. That is The Drawing of the Three. And in order to do that, we have brought in a multi-award winning New York Times bestselling author of... 
can we say what he's an author of? Or? Yeah, yeah. We, we okay, he's, he's an author of comic books whose work in that uh, field has, well, it's been very influential and very extensive. We found out this gentleman wanted to do the show and we were really hyped. And then talking to him about possible titles, the Dark Tower came up and we figured this was enough of a special occasion to uh, peel off another one of those titles. So you're going to be getting that. It's going to be very long and it is a hell of a conversation that digs really deep into the second uh, installment of King's Dark Tower series. Yeah, no, it's it's a good one, and it's this the age old argument of uh, the Machete Order of uh, of the Dark Tower, uh, yay or nay, is is brought up, and uh, you know you know where I stand on that. Um, yeah, that may be the last time we have to have that conversation. We are at an impasse, but uh, we <laughs> really dig into the nooks and crannies of it on on this particular episode, and we also go through character by character in the story. Every character that gets revealed on Roland's way along the beach and and dig into their uh, histories and and places within, well, within the Cotet, uh, at least in that first book and uh, Hmm. how they're brought over. It is just, it's a very extensive conversation. And I I think Dark Tower fans are going to be way into it. And also of note, uh, this person's a Dark Tower fan, but hasn't read past Wastelands. So we we actually go fairly light on spoilers uh, in this one. So... If you like halfway through the series and you've been avoiding the Dark Tower stuff for fear of of spoilers, uh, one, hurry your ass up. These books have been out for God knows how long now. What? 15 plus years has been yes. finished. So hurry up one. But number two, you know, you can listen to this one without fear of us spoiling the, the latter half of the series. Yeah, it's a really great episode. Uh, it's a great book. One of my all time favorites. It's the the acknowledged as the the book that hooks anybody in the dark tower like if, if no matter what you think of gunslinger love it or hate it it's it's book two where the the hook sets no matter mm-hmm. yeah, no matter which point of view you're you're coming at it and so for this uh friday on our patreon we are doing another tales from the king cast mailbag where we are answering questions so many questions so many so many questions uh this thing two hours rough, worth of questions yeah indeed. in rough cut form in raw form it is a well over two hours um hopefully it stays that way we'll see what the edit does to it but uh god how many questions do you think we answered in this one it's it's a lot it was like 15 20 easy it, yeah i wouldn't even venture a guess if they were unique uh in as in we had not heard them before or answered them before uh, we went through them. <laughs> you really um, answered that call for questions that we put right. out. In if you want to know who our Stephen King Mount Rushmore villains is, what the final verdict on that is, if you want to hear our initial thoughts on Chapelweight or you know, kind of what's up with Lisey's story, our thoughts on Lisey's story, that adaptation. God, what else? There's we cover so much ground. So 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 many like Stephen King. Stuff we'd like to see, Stephen King stuff that we would remake if we could. All that stuff is is in the the topics for questions that people ask me that were clearly bait to get me to talk about nine inch nails again. Um, Correct. There's yes, some nine inch yes. nails bait. There's there's even a, a question about pegging as it relates to the Dark Tower, which you will, <laughs> you know, th- that's the kind of listenership that we cultivate, and we appreciate them for it. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and one other thing we should tack on here at the end is that. At the beginning of next week, you should look for some sort of announcement via the Patreon or our, and or our uh, Twitter feed about the merch situation that we have been teasing for the last several weeks. I expect uh, there'll be some 
some solid news on that front for you to take in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So and if you want to get notified via Patreon and join in with all those crazy monsters over there, you can do that at patreon.com slash the KingCast. And also, if you're coming to uh, the first ever KingCast live event at this year's Fantastic Fest, do be aware uh, that our screening has been announced as taking place on Wednesday, September 29th, the South Lamar occasion at 6.20 p.m., Those of you who do make the pilgrimage out for this are in for one hell of a treat. We have really gone overboard uh, in terms of making this a memorable experience for for anyone that makes it. And just because we wanted to make our first live event special. So uh, get real hyped about that if if you're coming out. And if you're not coming out, uh, head on over to FantasticFest.com to find out how you can get involved. If you can't make the pilgrimage to Austin or you don't want to brave the the Delta <laughs> variant out there, we totally get it. Uh, but uh, you can always sign up for the Fantastic Fest uh, at home experience where you can at least see Timekeepers of Eternity, which is the movie we are presenting. It wouldn't have any of our shenanigans attached to it, but you can at least watch the movie. Oh, I didn't realize they were doing that. This is news I to believe me. they are. Oh, I saw so it on the list. Who knows? That stuff changes day to day. So, But as of this recording... Uh, timekeepers of eternity it will be available for the at home uh version of the festival oh well that's great all right well that should do it so we'll see you guys next week for drawing of the three on the main feed and this friday for our giant mailbag episode see you then folks bye the king cast is a fangoria podcast production the show is produced hosted and created by eric vespi that's me and scott wampler tira andley and abby goel are executive producers Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.